This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, coming to you as usual from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. We're at the start of a new year, and to kick the snake year off, we're going to enter the Wayback Machine and go back 3,000 years to the ancient world. I was coming back from Frankfurt a few weeks ago, and whilst killing time in my economy seat, I perused the selection of movies and TV shows, and of course I trolled for any history-related documentaries Lufthansa might have in their video entertainment system. Imagine my good fortune when I found they had a Mandarin program called Hui Wang Gou Wu, or Looking Back on the Gou Wu. It was a documentary covering the ancient state of Wu. So that was the sudden bolt of inspiration behind today's episode. Now I have to admit, I got confused for a moment because there's more than one single Wu period in China. There was this state of Wu from the spring and autumn period. That is our primary subject for today. Then there was another Wu state, this one called the Kingdom of Wu or Sun Wu. This was the eastern Wu state of the Three Kingdoms period. And then following the Tang Dynasty, there was another Wu kingdom. This one had its capital near present-day Yangzhou. Today, I wanted to focus on the Wu Guo, or state of Wu, that reached great heights in the 6th century BC and then flamed out rather abruptly in 473 BC. And I can't really talk solely about the Wu state without mentioning some other more important states at the time who interacted with them. So anyways, let's swoop in and just circle around this period in Chinese history. When I did those history overviews way back when, I didn't cut too deep. So this time around, we'll examine a few more specific periods in history. So let's set the stage for the Wu state. They didn't know it at the time, but they were situated right smack dab in one of the richest geographic areas in all of China. This was China's land of plenty, if there ever was one. If you look at a map of China and zero in on this Jiangnan region, as it's called, you could tell right away a lack of water was never going to be their problem. North of the Yangtze, the Chinese up there had the sword of occasional drought always hanging over their heads. And the way things developed up in the central plain, the cradle of Chinese civilization, water was less plentiful. Not down in Wuguo. This was the lower reaches of the Yangtze, the Changjiang, where it lets out into the East China Sea. It covered the areas of Lake Tai, Wuxi, Suzhou, Changzhou, Shanghai, Nanjing, Hangzhou, Shaoxing, Ningbo, Jiaxing, and some parts of northern Zhejiang. Basically, in a nutshell, southern Jiangsu and northern Zhejiang, with a little bit of Anhui and Jiangxi in there. It was a land of plenty, not only in its abundance of water, but in agriculture and natural resources as well. I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but there was an old Chinese saying that as long as the Wu state had a good harvest, all under heaven could be fed. Because of the abundance of water and 
being on the ocean and all, the people of the Wu region incorporated the sea and the rivers and lakes into their world. Eighteen centuries after the Wu state fell, it was here where the Yongle emperor built all the treasure ships that Zheng He and his admirals sailed on the seven voyages to the west. The earliest Chinese flat-bottom boats called junks, with those iconic sails, first mentioned in the Han Dynasty, were a Wu invention that came from this time. The Wu state was one of a couple hundred or so fiefdoms that arose during the Zhou Dynasty. The Western Zhou, if you recall, began with Zhou Wu Wang's victory over the wicked king, Di Xing. His Shang Dynasty troops fell to this future Zhou Dynasty co-founder at Mu Ye in 1046 BC. The Western Zhou had a nice 275-year run after that until things came to an end and the capital was moved in a hurry to the east to Zhengzhou and later to Luoyang. And this is the beginning of the Eastern Zhou Dynasty. And if you remember from way back in CHP 17, this Eastern Zhou period is more commonly known as the Spring and Autumn and Warring States periods. The Spring and Autumn period ran roughly from 770 to 481 BC, depending on who you ask and what sources you read. This first half of the Eastern Zhou was the Golden Age of Chinese philosophy. Confucius and Lao Tzu lived during this period. The Hundred Schools of Thought thrived during this time of relative upheaval in China. These Hundred Schools of Philosophy got whittled down to nine, and these nine truly formed the inner core of Chinese classical philosophy. The best known, of course, were Confucianism, Legalism, and Taoism. Back in the Bronze Age days, mankind hadn't yet figured out how to project power over long distances. Yeah, you had the beginnings of empires in Babylon, Assyria, and later Persia. But back then, the last half a millennium before the Common Era, the farther one got from the center of power, the more the reliance there was on other allies to do the fighting and administering for the conquering king. Relationships were everything. This was particularly so for the Zhou Dynasty kings. The old-fashioned way to project power was to take all your competent relatives and most loyal and trusted generals and give them land surrounding the capital, and that's how these vassal states were created. If you brought down a neighboring or distant state, you took someone you trusted and set them up there. And no one could marry from within the clan. So, Li couldn't marry Li, Chen couldn't marry Chen. Everyone married from outside their clan. This created this intricate filigree of familial connections between all these dozens and dozens and dozens of little statelets. And the Zhou kings were at the center of this web. And the Zhou's, of course, were of the Ji clan. Feudalism was thriving in Zhou Dynasty China, but you know how it is in history. These feudal lords often had a mind of their own, and although they paid fealty to the Zhou center, when they smelled blood in the water, they looked after their own interests first. So that was the political setup for the Eastern Zhou. The Zhou center, located in and around Luoyang, was surrounded by all these vassal states, the Wu included. The Wu had always been a minor state of no particular importance, mostly populated in the eyes of these northerners by uncouth and unrefined non-Han Chinese. 
That's how the Northerners looked at all these southern states south of the Yangtze. Barbarians didn't speak the northern dialect, weren't of the master Han race. These guys were hicks from the sticks in the urbane eyes of these Northerners. The farther you got from the Joe Center, the less the gravity held you. So these kingdoms down in the south, located along the Yangtze River, they had a mind of their own, and some of them didn't even pay fealty to the Joes. And many of them didn't even want to be part of that world, and their culture developed independent from the gravity of the eastern Joe kings. So as I said, these people down in that region, they didn't even speak the language of these northern Chinese. We call this northern Chinese language Mandarin, or Putonghua. But these southerners, located near the lower reaches of the Yangtze, their dialect, which today we know as the Wu dialect, it didn't sound anything like Mandarin. Of this Wu language, Shanghainese is the best known and most widely spoken. But everyone in that region spoke one form or another of this Wu dialect. When my peoples at the head office in Ningbo talk amongst themselves in their Ningbo dialect, which is essentially the same as Shanghainese with a few twists, I can't understand a thing. It doesn't sound anything like Mandarin. I have no point of reference listening to them. Not a single word can I recognize. The big three kingdoms down in the south, since about the 8th century BC, were the Chu, the Wu, and the Yue. They stayed connected to the Zhou, but did their own things too, like everyone else. The Chu territory was mostly based in Hubei, and later they expanded north into southern Henan. They were mostly located in the middle reaches of the Yangtze River. Wuhan is Chu territory. The three strongest of the kingdoms in the north, in the Chinese-speaking part of China, were the Jin in Shanxi, the Qin in Shanxi, and the Qi in Shandong. Lu was also in Shandong, but they were quite small and not powerful. It was in the state of Lu at this very time that Confucius was serving as an official. Jin and Lu were the two richest states and had more advanced economies. The two strongest militarily were the Jin in the north and the Chu in the south. This is still the Bronze Age. Iron won't come till well into the Warring States period. So these guys are fighting with swords and weapons made from bronze and other known allies of the day. This was the time of Carthage, the kings of Rome, the Golden Age, and Athens, and the start of the Persian Empire that would culminate with the conquests of Alexander the Great. To the east of Chu were the Wu and Yue. The Yue were south of the Wu, mostly in Zhejiang along the coast. Like the people of Wu state, the Yue were also a seafaring people who also knew their way around the lakes, rivers, and tributaries. Their capital was near present-day Shaoxing. The Yue people were the original inhabitants of the area. They came from closer to Southeast Asia and had migrated to this area over the millennia. We mentioned these Yue people in the Hong Kong History Part 1 episode. These collective tribes were known as the Bai Yue, the Hundred Yue. So these Yue people of the region were the earliest inhabitants of not only southern China, but the Wu and Yue states as well. The Liangzhu culture is credited to these Yue people. This was probably the last Neolithic culture in China. They were from around 3400 to 2250 BC and were located between Ningbo and Hangzhou. 
they were considered very advanced for their time, even surpassing what was concurrently developing in the north, where China was just starting to come into being. This was the prehistoric age of the San Huang Wu Di, the three sovereigns and five emperors. Lots of artifacts dug up, but the story is still being told. In 597 BC came Chu's big moment. At the Battle of Bi, the forces of their King Zhuang defeated the Jin forces. This is just outside the ancient city of Zhengzhou in Henan. This really puts Chu into the big leagues because the Jin had always been considered the team to beat. Chu culture, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, was the first to begin to blend the best of the cultures of the North and South. They mixed with the Northerners first and absorbed a lot of the best of Northern Central Plains culture. There have been a lot of Chu artifacts dug out of the earth in the past hundred years or so. They were quite prolific and left behind a lot of these bronze sacrificial vessels and bells. With the defeat of the forces of Jin, the Chu became a major force to contend with. Their arch enemies were the Wu, who bordered their lands to the east. They had always been at each other's throats, mostly over territory and access to the treasure trove of rich minerals and ores under their lands. Where did the Wu come from? They were Yue people, as I said, and if you had to slot them somewhere, I guess we can put them in the semi-barbaric category, which leads us to the story of their founding. This concerns the story of Wu Taipo, known mostly as Taipo. Taipo was the eldest son of the Zhou king, Zhou Taiwang, who is credited with the founding of the Zhou clan during the Shang dynasty. He's also known as Gu Gong Dan Fu, or Count Dan. Like all the Zhou kings, as I said, he is surnamed Ji and is also known as Ji uh, Dan Fu. He had three sons, Tai Bo, Zhong Yong, and Ji Li. Tai Bo was next in line to the throne, but his father asked him if he would forsake the throne instead for his youngest brother, Ji Li. They wanted to groom Ji Li to be the new king because Zhou Taiwang wanted his grandson, Ji Li's son, to be the next king. But he needed Tai Bo and Zhong Yong out of the way in order to do this. Taipo dutifully and formally renounced the throne and as a show of respect for the new heir, Ji Li. Together with Zhong Yong, they fled the lands of Zhou. Now this act of dutifully listening to his father and making such a huge sacrifice is going to immortalize Taipo in the eyes of the Confucians. They made a lot of hay about this act of devotion and filial piety. Zhou Taiwang's grandson, by the way, whom he had considered so special, was none other than Ji Chang himself, who we know as King Wen of Zhou, father of both Ji Fa and his brother Ji Dan. These two are better known as Zhou Wu Wang, King Wu of Zhou, and the revered Duke of Zhou. Tai Bo and Zhong Yong head south, and you guessed it, they decided to settle in the region around Lake Tai, right around Wuxi, Sima Qian, who I have to credit with most of the details, really goes into a lot of detail about Taipo and Chong Yong's time amongst the Yue people who, as I said, inhabited the region. Specifically, these were the Jing barbarians. Taipo and Chong Yong adopted their customs, their dress, their rituals, and 
blended in with their culture. He adopted a local name, calling himself Gowu. Taipo and Zhongyong soon gained acceptance and assumed leadership in the tribe. Taipo died without an heir, and his brother Zhongyong took over the leadership of the Wu as their second king. This sort of encapsulates what Sima Qian said, and he was speaking something like a thousand years after the fact. So there's a lot of genealogy, but not a lot of pork on those bones. This was 3,000 years ago, after all. Taipo is considered not only the father of the Wu state, but also the father of the entire clan of all people, surnamed Wu. This is the second tone, Kotian Wu, the character that has the heaven on the bottom and the mouth on the top. His tomb in Wuxi is considered a mecca for all Chinese, surnamed Wu, you know, using this character. As I said, Taipo was revered by Confucians, and it's suspected that this story of Taipo might have been written by them in a self-serving kind of a way, you know, trying to construct some perfect model for future generations to follow and that the Confucians might call their own. From time to time, you'll see this kind of thing happen where some heir to one throne or another in China will give up his chance and flee instead or live in exile. So Taipo and Zhongyong mix with the local people of the future state of Wu, and they bring them all the best that they could bring with them from the lands of the Yellow and Wei River Valleys. He fast-tracked the people of Wu to a higher level of sophistication. In time, he guided their culture into something that might be more recognizable to a northerner. But as Sima Qian makes it clear, none of these northerners looked at the Yue people of Wu as anything except barbarians even at their height. So they had to work harder than the next kingdom and were hell-bent on getting the acceptance and respect that they thought they deserved. So this is the ontological derivation of the myth or the legend of these Wu people, these present-day Shanghainese, Ningbo, Hangzhou, Suzhou people. 584 BC, the powerful Jin nursing their wounds after the Battle of Bi in a classic move to outmaneuver their rival in Chu, attempt an alliance with Wu using the connections of a defected Chu minister also bent on revenge. I don't know how many stories of revenge there are in the Shi or throughout the entirety of Chinese history going all the way to the present day, but sure seems like a popular theme that always makes it into the history books. The king of Jin sends this Duke of Shun to Wu and sets up this Jin-Wu alliance. He brought them chariots and taught them all kinds of as-yet-unknown military techniques. But most remember this Duke of Shun as the guy who put a bug in the air of the Wu king to go take his best shot at defeating the Chu to the west. The Duke of Shun let the Wu king know. These northern kingdoms up in the land of Zhou, they looked at the Wu as merely a lowly vassal state of the Chu. So Sima Qian says this emissary from the land of Jin sort of egged on the Wu king to get some street cred in front of the northern elites. The Wu king at the time was named Shou Meng. He had done a bit of traveling in the north and had visited the state of Lu, you know, Confucius' state. And he looked at the beauty and perfection of Lu culture and was determined to raise his Wu kingdom to such a level of refinement. And from that point on, King Shou Meng was determined to use every means to bring the best of this northern Chinese culture to the southern lands, to this Jiangnan region. And he wanted to lift up the Wu people to reach this level of cultural achievement that he saw in his travels up north. 
he went to Lu, Qi, and Jin. He learned much military strategy when he stayed in the other ancient state of Shandong, the state of Qi. These uh, two states, uh, there was Lu to the south with its capital at Chufu, and then the larger of the two was the state of Qi to the north, and its capital was at Linzi, which is where present-day Zibo is located. These were the two kingdoms of East Shandong province. That area is sometimes called Qi Lu Liangguo. From the Jin, King Shoumeng also learned a great deal, and he brought all these ideas back to Wu. And so began the transformation of Wu state into a new kind of experiment. Like Chu state, it soon blended the best of the south and the north. But Wu, with its rivers, lakes, and proximity to the East China Sea, began to be viewed as a kind of symbol, a California, if you will, where you could go and start all over in a whole new kind of environment where anything was possible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A lot of northern aristocrats, military and political figures, made their way down to the south. Others from lands out west also found a refuge in Wu. One such man was Wu Zixu. He had fled from his homeland in Chu. He was an advisor to the Chu king at the time, King Ping, who had murdered his way to the Chu throne in 529 BC. Wu Zixu's father, Wu She, was also an advisor to this Chu king, Ping. Wu She, along with Wu Zixu's brother, Wu Shang, were both killed in 522 BC over covering up some peccadilloes concerning a woman, no less. Wu Zixu was so outraged, and of course, what else? He swears to avenge his father's death at the hands of King Ping, and he flees to the Wu state. And there, Wu Zixu would go on to serve two kings. While serving in Wu, Wu Zixu recruited a military strategist from Qi state up in Shandong, this man's name was Sun Wu. Wu Zixu brought him down to the lands of Wu, and there Sun Wu settled down. While Sun Wu was down in Wu, living in the Qionglongshan area of Suzhou, he wrote a very famous treatise on military strategy and how to carry out war. In this book, we know today as the Sun Zi Bingfa, or the Art of War. Sun Wu is none other than Sun Zi or as uh, Gordon Gecko and Bud Fox call him, Sun Tzu. Wu Zixu and Sun Wu created a perfect team using their combined political and military genius in combo with an ambitious Wu king. This, along with the superior weapons technology of the Wu at the time and their reputation for fierceness on the battlefield, created a volatile combination. Because they knew how to harvest all this metal from the ground, some of the best swords made by the greatest masters in the state of Wu were considered a great treasure. But much is said about, you know, having Sun Tzu on their side is what really brought the Wu to their peak militarily. 
The Wu King at the time was He Lu. There's a legend as to how he clawed his way to the kingship. Before he was king, he was known as Prince Guang. Prince Guang had conspired with uh, one of the foremost famous assassins at the time, Zhuan Zhu, to assassinate King Liao of Wu. He was the current king at the time. A dinner was hosted by Prince Guang for King Liao at Prince Guang's place. Zhuan Zhu, the renowned assassin, hid a dagger inside a braised fish that he served to the king of Wu. And as he went to serve him, he pulled out the dagger and gave it to him right between the ribs, I presume. He killed the king of Wu with no less a blade than Yu Chang, one of the legendary works of the master Ouyezi. He was the master who made swords for kings. He made three for King Gojian of Yue, who will get to in a bit. Well, after He Liu got what he wanted, he had Zhuan Zhu dealt with, and the hitman himself was done in. He was placed in a tomb on the slopes of Mount Hong in Wuxi, the places known as the Tomb of the Assassins. Of the four top assassins of the day, two came from Wu State. He Liu had long had grand designs on his neighbor to the west. He reigned from 514 to 496 B.C. It was in 506 B.C. that He Liu, backed by the Jin, who had entered into that alliance with Wu, launched his war machine against the Chu, and he emerged victorious after five heated battles, and the Chu finally falling at the Battle of Boju. This historic Battle of Boju was led by He Liu, his brother Fu Gai, as well as the dynamic duo of Wu Zixu and Sun Wu. They marched in and sacked the Chu capital of Ying. And this is uh, in present-day Xichuan County in Henan, about a five-hour drive from Zhengzhou. Uh, the nearest city, I guess, would be Nanyang, right at the south Henan-North Hubei border. The Wu army had sailed up the Huai River and then marched east to the Han River, where they faced off with the Chu general Nanghua, and they fought three battles near present-day Hanchuan, just west of Wuhan. The Wu and the Chu also fought a campaign up in the Dapian Mountains. Twenty-four centuries later, in the summer of 1947 and into early 1948, Deng Xiaoping and Liu Bocheng would fight the KMT in these very same mountains. This surprise victory by He Liu over the powerful Chu sent tremors throughout the lands of the eastern Zhou. The Chu were so feared, and the Wu, still up to that point, weren't yet taken seriously by anyone. Confucius, by the way, is alive at this time and serving up in the state of Lu. This was the age that all of this was happening. Chinese philosophy is already starting to see a hundred flowers bloom. Despite all this military success, the Wu state still couldn't get the respect it felt it deserved from these northern kingdoms. So there continued this animosity and aggression. You might say these northern kingdoms and states were getting the feeling that these Wu upstarts were getting a little too big for their britches. He Liu's son was named Fu Chai. He was a real hellraiser with something to prove, and he wanted to make a big statement throughout the Zhou world. He wasn't well-liked or accepted because of his brashness. One time when Fu Chai was visiting up in Lu State, where, you know, rituals mattered more than anywhere else, he tried to break precedent once during one of the ceremonies and, you know, change it up a little bit to his liking. 
You know, just like that, because he was the king of Wu, and he felt he had this authority wherever he went. So this and acts like this really shook things up and gave Fu Chai a bad name. Wu continued their expansion to the north and to the west. They couldn't go east because they were on the Pacific Ocean. The Chu had powerful friends, though, to the north. These were the Qin, who were a rough lot. One of their own, Ying Zheng, is going to conquer all these kingdoms and unify China in a couple centuries. But right now, they're going to come to the aid of the Chu and help kick the Wu out in 505 BC. After his adventure in Chu, Fu Chai set his sights on his hated neighbor to the south, the Yue state, led by their king Go Jian. Fu Chai defeated the Yue, and King Go Jian was forced to make a humiliating peace, and for ten years he secretly swore revenge. Now this fighting with the Yue didn't go down too well with the Wu soldiers, because this Yue state was populated by, you know, these Yue people, same ethnicity as the Wu, and this wasn't the same as fighting the Chu or the, you know, northern Hans. After so many successes on the battlefield, the Wu became complacent and overconfident. In 484, Wu defeated Qi, and the Wu state fought on. From Helu to Fu Chai, the war machine of this Wu state was almost going nonstop. Even a rich state as Wu, with so many resources at their disposal, soon depleted their treasure and could go no further. Not only had Fu Chai exhausted the wealth of Wu on nonstop campaigns against his neighbors, he was also quite extravagant with monuments to himself. In 486 BC, Fu Chai began work on uh, digging a canal. It was called the Han Go, or the Han Canal. Go means canal. Fu Chai had this notion of sailing his mighty Wu warships right up into the heartland of China, right into the land of Qi. He figured all he had to do was dig this canal. Well, due to financial reasons and the limitations of civil engineering at the time, the whole idea failed and he had to give it up. But we remember this feat of Fu Chai in the construction of the Hanko. You can still see it today if you go to Yangzhou. It connects the Yangtze and Huai rivers. When the Sui emperors Wen and Yang built the Grand Canal in the early 7th century AD, all they had to do was continue on where the Hanko left off. So Fu Chai sort of got it started for them. Another signature monument, this one to Fu Chai's extravagance and waste, was the Guanhua Palace in western Suzhou. There's a legend that this was his secret love nest built for his beloved Xi Shi. Xi Shi was one of the four beauties of ancient China, the Si Da Mei Nu. They were Xi Shi, Wang Zhaojun, Diao Chan, and Yang Guifei. Xi Shi came from the land of Yue. Her life is immortalized in literature, art, music, and Chinese opera. She was a plant by the king of Gojian of Yue. The king had been advised to send the finest beauties of Yue to Fu Chai to mesmerize him and distract him and capture his heart and mind and lead him down a path of debauchery. His weakness for the ladies was, you know, known by this time. And this is exactly what happened, according to the legend, as many a Chinese emperor would do in the centuries to follow. Fu Chai forsook his affairs of state 
and focused all his attention and energies to his beloved Shishir. As the legend goes, she was so beautiful that when she stared into the river, the fish would behold her beauty and sink to the bottom of the lake, so impacted were they by her stunning beauty. No one knows if she sure ever existed. I can tell you she isn't mentioned at all in the three major historical sources of the day, the Shi Ji, the Zhuquan, and the Guoyu. But it's a great story, and it surely served its purpose, which was to vilify the Wu state. She is immortalized in Su Dongpo's poem, comparing her to the beauty of Hangzhou's Westlake, forever tying her spirit to that famous scenic wonder of China. Wu Zixu continued to serve Fu Chai well, but Fu Chai didn't like his father's wise minister all that much, and Wu Zixu had stood up to Fu Chai and had advised him against his wishes and told him things he you know, didn't want to hear. And for this, Fu Chai ordered Wu Zixu to commit suicide. And this the loyal Wu Zixu does, but not before he requests that his eyes be plucked out so that the king could display them on the Xu gate, the, the Xu men, so that when the Yue overrun Wu, he can be there to see it all happen. And just as Wu Zixu predicted, despite signing an alliance with the Qin and other states in the north at Huangchi in 481, in 473 BC, the Yue indeed overrun Wu, and it was King Gojian of Yue leading the charge, and although it took him ten years to do it, he finally got his revenge. And Fu Chai killed himself with his own sword, and before he plunged the dagger in, Fu Chai lamented that he had not listened to Wu Zixu's sage advice. In Jingzhou, Hubei, 1965, just as the cultural revolution was ramping up. Archaeologists there were working near a reservoir and chanced upon 50 or more tombs from the Chu state. And the marquee find at this great discovery was the sword of Gojian, this Yue king. How did they know it was his? The Chu back then, and the Yue as well, they used their own unique script, but it was you know translated. And four of the characters on this sword said that this specific weapon belonged to the king of Yue for his personal use. Go Jin wasn't the only king of Yue, so it wasn't known for sure if it was his or whose, but the general consensus says it was Go Jin's. The amazing thing about this sword of Go Jin, as it's called, was that when they discovered it in 1965, after it had laid there below the ground for 2,500 years since the 6th century B.C., when they removed the sword from its outer protection, it was still amazingly sharp and not a single drop of tarnish. It looked exactly like it did the day it was put inside that tomb. It's now on display at the Hubei Provincial Museum in Wuhan. Historians and archaeologists will be busy indefinitely down there. There have been about five cities, 73 sites, and 800 tombs filled with Chu culture, unearthed there so far with more surely waiting to be discovered. Actually, if you go to the Hubeisheng Guan, you can get a twofer. There's also the Spear of Fu Chai that was discovered in 1983. I guess they sort of did the same thing in Wu that they did in Yue. The sword was similarly inscribed with the words... That said, this sword was made for King Fu Chai for his personal use. 
So they were indeed actual historical people who had been written about and who left behind artifacts attesting to their life on this earth. The local authorities in the Suzhou area are sinking a lot of RMB into projects to preserve all these antiquities. Suzhou, Wuxi, and the surrounding environs have a lot of stuff from 3,000 years of history, and the cities have played an active role in China all the way up to the present day. So the Wu state, as we know it, may have petered out in 473 BC after they fell to their southern neighbors, the Yue, but their legacy, of course, lives on to this day. Of China's most famous scholars and literary people, a disproportionate amount come from this Wu region. And this is why the land of Wu was always considered China's great center uh, for artists and literary figures. After years of fighting and after Wu's final conquest uh, by Yue in 473 BC, the Wu and the Yue sort of merged and the cultures of the two states sort of melded into one. And to finish off our story, the Yue beat the Wu, the Chu beat the Yue, and then the Qin under Ying Zheng, who became Qin Shi Huang, they beat the Chu, which ended this period of all these states and kingdoms. But Wu lived on in so many histories, stories, and legends that were written about in China. The whole Wu culture is going to get a huge jolt right after the Western Jin falls. You no doubt recall that it was Emperor Wu of Jin, good old Sima Yan. He was part of Cao Cao's gang, and he ended up uniting China after the Three Kingdoms period. He set up the Western Jin in 265, and it ended in 420 AD. Now, after the fall of the Western Jin, things just got too hot up there with all these invading northern barbarian tribes. The Han Chinese up there, they just picked up and got out of these towns and villages in Henan, Shanxi, Shanxi, Shandong, and they just, they just bolted for the south. And as I said, the former Wu state was like you know, the California or Florida of its day, all those beautiful lakes, rivers, and landscapes, people from the north just flooded into this region. And as it's been said a billion times, this Jiangnan Wenhua, this culture down there just blossomed. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, there's other woos out there that might trip you up. And of these woos we discussed today, the Wu character of the state of Wu is the Ko Tian Wu, as I said, second tone. I also mentioned Sun Wu, a.k.a. Sun Zi, and uh, Wu Zi Xu. That's two different Wu's, and neither of them are the Ko Tian sort. There's also later on in the Three Kingdoms period, the Eastern Wu, or Sun Wu, the Wu character is indeed the Wu of the Wu state, the Ko Tian Wu. During the Three Kingdoms time, this was the land of the Sun clan, and so they call it Sun Wu, perhaps to give their state some historical gravitas. Sun Wu fell in 280 AD to Sima Yan, founder of the Western Jin. There's another Wu to sort of add to the confusion. During the period when China cracked up after the end of the Tang Dynasty, there was the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period. This was a wretched time that lasted in between the Tang and the Song from 907 to 960. If you recall from CHP episode 28, there were five dynasties in the north that ran one right after the other. Then down in the south, there were ten kingdoms, many of which ran 
concurrently. Now, one of these ten kingdoms was the Wu. It's also called the Southern Wu, and they lasted from 907 to 937, and their capital was at Yangzhou. This is the uh, Wu kingdom run by the Yang clan. And to take this one step further, during the Ten Kingdoms period, there was also the kingdom of Wu Yue with its uh, capital in modern-day Hangzhou. This was the Qian family. The Qians, like the Yangs, were all former regional Tang Dynasty strongmen who struck out on their own when the end of the dynasty came. The Wu Yue lands were all in North Zhejiang and Shanghai, so the Wu kingdoms, of course, were based in the traditional uh, Wu lands. I know I threw a ton of Chinese names and terms and whatnot at you. If you're interested to sort out all of these Wu's and everything else, go to my website at chinahistorypodcast.com and you'll see the usual list of terms mentioned in the podcast. There's over 70 terms this week listed, a record here at the China History Podcast. So that's that. Thanks, Alex, for helping me out with the correct way to pronounce China in Swedish. I said Kina in an earlier podcast, and it should be pronounced Sheena. Who knew a Swedish K is our English SH? Thanks, Alex. Zhuang Zedong died last week. He was one of China's greatest table tennis players. He was the guy who set in motion the whole ping-pong diplomacy thing that helped pave the way for Nixon's visit in 1972. Only Zhuang Zedong had the guts to go approach Glenn Cowan on that fateful day in Nagoya, Japan. Glenn Cowan, who sadly passed away in 2004, got on the wrong bus at the World Table Tennis Championships going on at the time, and the American bus had already left, and so he hopped on the Chinese team bus instead to get a ride. He sat there on the Chinese bus and no doubt freaked everyone out because, you know, no one would dare speak to him or approach him. This was, you know... 1971. But not Zhuang Zedong. He went up to Glenn, talked to him through an interpreter, and at the spur of the moment presented him with that, that little gift of that uh, silk embroidery of Huang Shan and, you know, that had been made somewhere in Hangzhou. And baby, the rest was history. Ten months later, Zhou Enlai was waiting at the end of the steps of Air Force One to greet Richard Nixon in Beijing. What a world. The immortal Zhuang Zedong, 1940 to 2013. Thanks, everyone, if you made it this far, and thanks, everyone, for all the emails and likes and postings on my CHP Facebook page. I'm sorry I haven't done much with it yet, but I'll keep posting something on that uh, Facebook page every few days to keep you updated on whatever. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from gorgeous Claremont, California, right on the easternmost edge of L.A. County. It's 80 degrees and perfectly sunny here. No smog or nothing, and the mountains look fantastic. What a spectacular SoCal day it is. It's back down to the normal 50s and 60s next week, so I'm enjoying this respite while I can. I'll see you next week, I hope, and pray for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.